Hello, and welcome to Rising with the Tide. This episode is part of a mini-series of episodes from our older podcast, the Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast. Hello and welcome to episode three of the LUXR podcast. My name is Skander. We have Josh as co-host here today. And with us is Dr. Benjamin Neymark, senior lecturer at the LEC at Lancaster University. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Hi, guys. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming along. Um, so before we begin, um, I want to remind everyone that this podcast is started to inform, really, our guests. Um, so I hope you take from this as much as uh, we do, because I know we learn a lot from our guests uh, every time we have a conversation. And that's what we really want from, from this podcast, for you to learn the intricacies of global warming, climate change, and uh, environmental uh, degradation, so that we can learn and, uh, and fix these issues together. Um, so Ben, I hear you're writing a book. I am. Um, there's nothing like uh, trying to write a book during a uh, once in a hundred year pandemic. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. you know, I just, I just like to challenge myself, another layer of challenges. Uh, yeah, I am actually writing a book. Um, it's sort of a culmination of, of, of a host of my work up to now about um, what I call the triple nexus of sustainable development, the uh, bio, green, and blue economy. It's primarily, oh, okay. yeah, and it's uh, the, the premise of the book is uh, about sort of commodity frontiers or sort of conservation commodities, these mm -hmm. uh, sort of window into how capital relations extend, intensify, and commodify new natures um, in periods of global ecological crisis, including climate change, deforestation, and biodiversity extinction. It sort of all culminates in these uh, development interventions touch down in um, one of the hottest of the hotspots in Madagascar, which I've been working in right, quite yeah. some time. Yeah, I've seen you, yeah. you've written quite a few uh, articles and such about um, bioprospecting, is that it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so drug, drug discovery from nature, right? right which, yeah. is, which is kind of couched into the uh, bioeconomy, the sort of right. knowledge-based economy of, of, of uh, mobilizing the biotechnology, but also life sciences and advanced engineering and, and all the new technology and, and scientific knowledge around that to uh, find new products fuels and uh you know uh new chemicals new drugs from nature um but also using nature as a model to uh sort of you know move forward in in the advanced sciences um and so uh that's the work i've been doing for quite some time and now um, moved on to biofuels from there both uh taking place case studies taking place in madagascar Right. I, I, um, I remember from one of my classes, actually, on the, I think it was called um, Politics of Development or Development Politics with uh, Nguy Lisum. Um, mm -hmm. She taught us about biopiracy, um, the way in which more sort of developed countries going to lesser developed countries and, and kind of uh, sort of patent uh, their biological entities to, mm -hmm. to this way. Um, and they they end up sort of for example if there's a a, a super berry that's sort of extremely sweet um the that that country the country in which it's its host country sorry is um is not able to for example sort of use that berry um in a, and patent it and and make a product out of it um a sort of company from a, a more developed country which would have the means uh, comes in and sort of uses this to to create a product and to then patent it and and take ownership of that biological entity is, sure, sure. is that something you talk yeah, about yeah i mean I, it's great that you that you pick that up from from your development class that's really excellent um that is uh primarily how the 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 understanding of biopiracy works is sort of an activist term to sort of call out what is a um, extractive process of both knowledge and nature from uh, indigenous communities. Uh, for a long time, people thought that um, that the one way to, to sort of get 
to a bioactive substance quickly was to ask indigenous people who have been using or local people who have been using uh, natural resources for a long time, um, you know, what they were using for medicinal plants or for other uh, types of, of uses. And that would then lead uh, scientists from the West or the North, mainly the US, Europe and uh, countries in Europe and, and Japan who were doing a lot of this sort of international work to um, hasten the time to find a bioactive substance. This is a very, very, very difficult process of finding new drugs from nature. It's not just uh, a simple sort of step. Mm -hmm. So they thought that would hasten the process. And in return, I mean, that had been going on for quite some time until 1992 when the Convention of Biological Diversity came um, in Rio, the first Earth Summit in Rio. There was a, 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 um, a protocol where uh, it, nature found amongst uh, within sovereign states now was the um, property of that state and if you collected anything from that country um, or anyone or knowledge from that country you then had to return commercialized benefits back to that country and so that oh, no. set up what yeah that set up what were the first sort of protocols the access and benefit sharing protocols and um, that also set up a whole uh, I guess you could say um, a spectrum of resistance to what yeah. was seen as very, very uneven power relations. I mean, the idea was uh, uh, there was the Imbio um, agreement with Merck and uh, Costa Rica, and then there was the um, other agreements, one in Madagascar with the National Institutes of Health, where the return of benefits was meant to go back to the government of those countries and some commercialized benefits from whatever was was discovered could then go back to the local communities to promote conservation in those areas but then you know questions around um what was what was enough right um who actually owns that knowledge and, and nature i mean madagascar um knowledge around biodiversity is it is specifically held within ancestors right so how do you return money back to someone who who's not with us anymore yeah. right i mean and you know which is you know that's your friend if that's your starting make problem, a donation it, in their name yeah. right <laughs> i mean well it's it's difficult right and so then there's questions of whether or not the central government um is actually accountable to these local communities um you know, and so you, it, it brought up a whole host of legal challenges and also ethical questions about what kind of science we're doing. And that fit really uh, nicely within the work I was, I was you know, uh, doing um, around the bioeconomy writ large, but also um, within my subfield of geography, human geography, which is political mm -hmm. ecology. Um, and you know the idea that uh green isn't necessarily uh you know nece necessarily you know sustainable or or isn't um green might actually be green right it might actually yeah, yeah, be some, yeah. you know a search this for a, commercialized nature right yeah. yeah and so early political ecology really analyzed historical and spatial sort of uh differentiated access uh um, and power over natural resources. You know, right. this originally was seen through the lens because it was rooted in in uh, Marxist thought and political economy um, and agrarian political economy through class. But later, other forms such as social difference um, within gender, ethnicity, age, sexuality. You know, a whole host of new types and forms of political ecology yeah. came up. You know, with the understanding that the environment really is an arena of contested sort of entitlements, conflicts, mm -hmm. claims over property, assets, labor, politics, and recognition. Um, and since, is, yeah, sorry. You, sorry, just um, quickly add, um, is, do, you, do you find that today um, that Rio Convention and sort of the, the rules that have been put in place against biopiracy and bioprospecting, has, have they been upheld? Have, uh, do people follow these laws? Or are countries still kind of um just going by sort of uh, might is right yeah it's an interesting question i mean i think it's really rooted within the contextual sort of uh localized case studies you might find some 
um, particularly national scientists. Um, I work quite closely and have been for a long time with, with national scientists in Madagascar, for example, Madagascar mm -hmm. scientists. Yeah. And, um, you know, they've had relationships with local communities for a long time. And so they've always held a, a particularly, um, what you would say, um, sort of agreements amongst the communities they work with. Now, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it fits along the lines of these international agreements, nor do they have the, the same sort of power and clout that some of the international scientists do or resources. And so um, for the most part, um, I would say scientists uh, want to play by the rules. They would rather play by the rules, but they, um, they also uh, need access, right? And so the scientists see themselves as non-political actors for the most part, yeah. right? They see themselves as, you know, looking to discover drugs from nature, and they don't yeah. they don't necessarily see that these uh, local level sort of access um, issues and tensions and histories are their business. And yeah. so um, they don't necessarily like to get involved in these kind of local level beefs. And on and, the other um, hand, you know, you could say that every action is a political action of, of sorts. Yes, you could. And, um, you know, it's, uh, science itself is sort of uh, ripe for political sort of wrangling. And um, political ecologists have been quite good at, at sort of getting into the sort of I guess you could say, you know, discursive interplay of environmental governments, environmental policy, knowledge production. And so, um, yeah, to answer your question, is it is everything is it, some people would argue Vandana Shiva and, um, you know, Pat Mooney, who have been very forceful in terms of understanding biopiracy, they would argue any type of bio prospecting or biodiscovery is a form of biopiracy, right, given the history yeah. of of, of colonial encounters and post-colonial encounters of, of, of unequal access and inequality. However, on the other side, um, you know, people see the value of trying to discover uh, new drugs from nature and uh, returning benefits to communities that certainly can use um, a new injection of development and cash right and mm -hmm. so yeah. you know you have local level people who are more than willing to uh participate in bioprospecting expeditions as i've studied in my research for quite some time um you know they would argue to me that it's much better than that mining company down the road mm -hmm. right these scientists are coming in and collecting a few bags of plants yeah i mean yeah. yeah maybe i don't see any results from it and maybe i don't um you know we'll never see a commercialized drug or um any large sort of payout um but at least my forest is intact and i can yeah. kind of yeah. still sort of have access to an, uh, a forest that's not um you know been clear-cut due to yeah. a, a huge open uh, pit mine right I, I, i'm not sure um so i, I can't speak for for josh uh, as well obviously like any opinions that i express in this podcast are my own uh, <laughs> they're not my co-hosts or uh, xrs um but personally i i feel like there's a a really like an overarching question of uh, more philosophical of should we should we even be able to do these sort of things to natural um, entities so like i think this is something that vandana shiva for example you mentioned um says a lot sort of in her books uh, argues for is the idea that nature or even for example rice um, food should not be patentable that the, these are not sort of commodities to be to be patented i think especially rice seeing its uh, sort of symbolic um nature in in asia for example um as sort of a source of food right and so I think there's a there's a larger question at hand of of should we even be able to own something from nature? But then we it feels like we're so far gone into the yes already that uh, stopping it would would require such huge changes. And I think you're right when you say that there's a there's a difference I think between, for example, mining and and bioprospecting. Uh, I think of of Ecuador, for example, uh, during the early 2000s, early mid 2000s, right when uh, Rafael Correa came to power, and he had a sort of very environmentally, as far as I, I remember, at least he had a 
very environmentally minded sort of uh, campaign for president mm-hmm. uh, one and then still sort of uh, try to to take some resources from Ecuador's uh, environment and, and the idea was that you know some countries feel at least so far behind in development that they as I understand it they feel like they they must use their environment to their advantage to kind of um, catch up even though you know there's a whole sort of debate about whether that would actually be catching up uh, whether the the West's sort of uh, development model is really um, linear and, and all that um, yeah I mean it, 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 I mean one of, one of one of the philosophical arguments that go back and forth and of course there's no right answer here but there's you know the under a, a sort of way in which we see development and, and um, a kind of theories of of how um, self-determination also balanced against sort of national you know sovereignty and national determination of, of wanting to be um, at a particular level of development um you know i i you know my my perspective i, I sort of uh, follow along with um sort of dick pete and elaine hartwick where they take this kind of uh a uh critical realism sort of perspective um mm-hmm. kind of coming from tim foresight where you know a basic needs approach um where yes um you know people have a right for self-determination and 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 a national kind of sovereignty um and they shouldn't be held up to develop um to a western standard of development if they don't want that but um if they also um you know some communities i've worked with in madagascar in particular that don't have running water or any um you know, accessible markets or paved roads, and and um, the access to healthcare is incredibly limited. That um, there is a desire to achieve a level of development where basic needs needs to be um, provided for. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so um, you know, if the state is not accountable or doesn't have the means to be accountable, then um you know uh, where else do do um certain communities get access to resources to get clean water and and you know any uh health and and so yes i mean i i, I teach development myself you know um in lancaster and i and i in within the environment center and you know we go through these debates all the time and so um of course there's no right answer but there is um the way in which development plays out in particular contexts is different, but yet um, sometimes follow certain patterns of uneven um, mm-hmm. and and inequality, you know, unjust. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, ever since uh, the the regulations kind of went into place, uh, where you know the patenting of life, right? This very famous Supreme Court case. Uh, uh, Chuck Aparti, um, where he's working for General Electric, he developed a sort of bacterium which, um, you know, was able to gobble up crude oil, right? This kind of yeah. petroleum um, bacterium, right? And, you know, it was this uh, case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court and opened the door, right? It, that, uh, you know, that microorganisms are alive and, and um, you know, were able then, uh, because of its new use or sui generis uh, use of the microorganism, that it was patentable, right? And this opened the door for the biotechnology industry in the 1980s and moving in to um, the 90s and, you know, where last century was the century of, of physics, we now saw that, you know, the next century is the century of of biology, right? And so now we're moving into things like synthetic biology and CRISPR and gene editing and the um, biomimicry, right? Mimicking nature has just opened up the floodgates in the, our ability to manipulate, right? Um, And And and, our laws are very reactive, I feel. Um, Yeah, no, of course, we're we're very reactive. I mean, the science is, is, is is particularly in terms of sort of um, 
AI and the way in which um, the biological and the engineering worlds and computer worlds or uh, coding worlds are sort of now coming into a very, very interesting matrix of, of new discoveries that um, regulation can't keep up, right? And, and so um, at one level, I find it very important for us as scholars um, to be able to sort of fill that gap, right, and to inform. And to keep up on the beat, right, of um, of what is the next big thing, why it's being promoted as the next big thing, and how many times this is played out in contexts um, that aren't very uh, transparent, right? And so, next thing you know, um, the next, you know, this debate just kind of, I don't want to turn it to this necessarily, but, you know, the next, the debate about uh, testing the new, um, you know, COVID-19 you know, vaccines on, yeah, yeah. on, you know, populations in the global South, particularly mm -hmm. communities in Africa, right? And so, or even, you know, or even the, the poor within the sort of global North, uh, which is what I've, I've been finding um, sort of throughout the news is that it seems like these uh, vaccines are not, I mean, yeah, yeah I agree that they seem to be wanting to be tested in the global South, but also sort of within the poor, um, yeah, yeah, sure. There are poor segments, of, uh, in, in, you know, poor segments in, in uh, local, you know, who's volunteering for these studies, right? And and yeah. you know, you don't necessarily um, they don't dig too deeply into the kind of structural sort of, you know, reasons why uh, people might be lining up to test for a vaccine. Um, so would you but, say that would you say that uh, a philosophical uh, that philosophers will kind of be needed for these sort of uh, bioprospecting questions and such um because that would make my philosophy degree very valuable in the next yeah. few years <laughs> <laughs> yeah as a as a, a, a an employee of the university you just graduated from i guess i feel a bit <laughs> obligated to provide some sort of employment sort of in this rocky what's going to be a fairly rocky road yeah. ahead of you um you ever hear of grad school i mean that's the only advice yeah. I can give you. but uh um I mean, yeah, moving, I mean, you know, there's there's a whole host of, of ethical, medical ethical questions moving forward. And I think they're already being questioned and, and um, yeah, so get on it. But, um, you know, I, I do feel that there's a role here to play for critical social scientists and, and uh, philosophers and the yeah. humanities and, you know, those who have studied history, um, you know, I was just reading a fascinating article about uh, Dr. Fauci in the U.S. and his sort of conundrum during he was really the head research in National Institutes of Health that that was in charge of uh, testing the uh, HIV cocktails of against oh, right. uh, the AIDS virus, right? And a really fascinating article and, and just the sort of tensions he was going through and his, re his relationship with the... Um, with activists, AIDS activists act up in particular that came out and he became, you know, was mortal enemies with and then mortal enemies <laughs> like a comic book, but like ended up being very, very uh, working with in the future and really changed the way in which we think through these questions. Um, yeah, right. but I mean, so that's my work in bioprospecting in the bioeconomy. I've also done quite a bit of work in biofuels in Madagascar um, mm -hmm. about land acquisitions and, you know, the, the understanding of, of green energy and green fuels, um, you know, one of the largest sort of bellwether cases of, of land grabbing took place in Madagascar in 2008, 2009. It sort of, um, you know, it, 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 it pushed forward a, a, what many were calling a, a political coup d'etat and, and um, you know, then uh, sparked a five-year economic crisis um, and political crisis um, and so, um, yeah, work in green fuel and green energy has also fit within this kind of scheme of bio um, economy, but also yeah. um, biodiversity offsets, right? And so that's that's also another sort of thing that's taking place in Madagascar, where a large nickel and uh, cobalt mine is is um, you know working with very large environmental organizations we call them bingos, to um, offset their um, environmental damage somewhere else, right? right? They're kind of within this, what we call the economy of repair, right? So their ability to destroy nature one place and then 
offset that destruction somewhere else. And right, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. that, you know, planting trees somewhere else where they're taking down, you know, very, very diverse, one of the most biodiverse tropical rainforests in Madagascar. And so how do you calculate those costs? And there's a yeah, whole yeah. industry of accountants out there sort of counting species and then calculating what the what the offset of those species are. Yeah, and I feel like we yeah, go ahead. We usually find we usually find that this sort of um, activity ends up in in sort of um, more like a, a bandage, really, on the on the on the wound. Yes. Yeah, so in the article, you said that eighty percent of the eighty percent of the emissions from the U.S. Uh, from the U.S. military comes for just from jet fuel. And you said in you said that you've worked in the past on biofuel in Madagascar. I just wondered what your insight is on the development of, of biofuel for aircraft? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so uh, this, this study comes from um, a, a former study that uh, Patrick Bigger, who's a lecturer at Lancaster University in LEC as well, um, it's, it started from a conversation we had in, in all places um, in a pub in, in uh, Oslo. Uh, the Petro state of Oslo, actually, <laughs> of, of, of Norway, right? Uh, the city, uh, the, the capital. And yeah. um, conversations we were having, we were at a small conference together on uh, green grabbing and, um, and about his interests in, uh, you know, the military, the U.S. military as a, as a political, political economic force, right? So we never really think of the military or militaries as an economic actor. And then um, my interest at that time was particularly, like you said, around biofuels and biofuels in Madagascar. Um, and um, I had just come, moved over from uh, Lancaster from a school, Old Dominion University, which is in Norfolk, Virginia, which happens to have the largest uh, naval um, base in the US. And so a lot of work around there was um, not focused on biofuels per se, but I did start to turn towards biofuels and think about what was the US Navy's movement on biofuel, drop in biofuels to their fleet. Um, and it was a new fleet called the Great Green Fleet. Um, and it was a fascinating sort of conversation that then turned us towards thinking about the U.S. Uh, military as a, uh, a geopolitical ecology actor, right? So taking geopolitics right. and political ecology as a conceptual framework and thinking through uh, to get a deeper understanding of, of large geopolitical institutions like the U.S. military and environmental change. Um, and this launched us into a, a, a paper called Weaponizing Nature and really launched the, the conceptual framework of geopolitical ecology. And then a few years later, after that paper came out um, on the Great Green Fleet, um, we started to then think through, well, what would the global environmental, what is the global environmental footprint of the U.S. military? We couldn't find much data on it at all. And... Um, this then lent us to uh, thinking through, well, originally we wanted to do the, what's the, um, Patrick's idea was, what's the uh, carbon blueprint of the US war on terror, right? And so thinking through sort of post 2001 and all these different kind of, and then we realized the majority of those hidden carbon costs are really roped up into kind of black ops and you know things that we would never be able to get our hands on yeah yeah um, you know uh, classified <laughs> sure. documents and whatnot um and so yeah. have you seen how long i mean i'm sure you've experienced the wait for uh for freedom of information requests can you imagine for black ops how, how yeah no i mean you know we we it would be my great grandson who or yeah. granddaughter who would be doing this work you know uh and so you know clearly we're we were we were a bit out of our league um, and then we, we joined up with uh, two people who are really great, um, Kara Kennelly, who was a recent graduate from uh, the Lancaster Environment Center, who did a lot of work with, uh, in uh, life cycle analysis. And then um, Alva Bletcher, who's from Durham University, who does military histories. And we developed this paper around the hidden carbon costs of the everywhere war, right? Yeah. 
logistics, geopolitical ecology, and the carbon blueprint. And we actually, um, we did a uh, environmental footprint, a carbon footprint of the US military using Freedom of Information Act requests and getting to the amount of fuel that the US military, all four branches consumed. And what we found was that a lot of that fuel, not surprisingly, was jet fuel, right? Uh, yeah. um, that uh, the US military was, if it were a country, its fuel alone would make the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Yeah. We have a very close colleague, Net, uh, Nita Crawfield, at, uh, in the Cost of War Project in the US. Uh, she found very similar results in a, in a surprisingly an independent study she was doing for that, where, you know, the U.S., uh, uh, around 77 or 80 percent of the U.S. government energy consumption is by the Pentagon. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. we're talking about just in terms of an institution, there's just really no match. And yeah. um, I mean, this as much as a country I saw on the on the graphs of your paper. So so that paper, which came out in, in June 2019, if I'm right. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, it just um, it, it came out online in 2019, but it just yeah. came out. Um, and then we had a follow up conversation blog on it, which just I mean, I guess if, if you know, yeah. it went it translated into five But on the on the on the on the charts that you had on on that web on the um, paper were were astonishing. I mean, I remember what was it something like uh, as much as uh, more than Greece it emitted more than Greece in terms of uh, yeah yeah I mean you know it, it, it equal is, to that I mean, Greece of, of is not like a small countries country. <laughs> yeah no I mean and this was only fuel consumption right we're not even talking yeah. about concrete for forward operating bases or seawalls or you know electricity generation I mean we're just talking about mm -hmm. fuel here fuel consumption so you know, just massive, massive amounts. And, and um, this has opened up a really interesting point uh, of venue for us to think through um, institutional actors, um, actors not just as, um, you know, geopolitical actors, as you would think the U.S. military, but also political economic actors. They moved markets. They moved the biofuel markets in California when they were developing the Great Green Clean. And yeah. also um, large institutional actors like bingos, big environmental organizations as geopolitical actors themselves, right? So kind of turning that around to yeah. see what would be environmental actors and Goldman Sachs, right? So economic <laughs> actors that act like environmental actors, right? And climate so. actors, right? And, you know, which is a really, you know, interesting thing we could talk about in terms yeah. of investment and investment of, of the university. However, I, that was a long-winded way to say that um, biofuels and the biofuels I was studying, particularly at a very, very local level in Madagascar, that were being fed into or meant to be fed into not just they were local consumption, but also to um, you know feed into the larger feedstocks of the globe, right? In Europe's yeah. sort of ability to transition to alternative fuel sources by 2020, where 20% of their fuel was meant, or 25% was meant to the EU biofuel directive to get to uh, their sort of mandate. And, um, you know, you just think about the scale of biofuels that need to be grown and processed to um, feed into one flight. And it's just, the scale, the economies of scale are just, you're talking about mm -hmm. apples and oranges here. I mean, just yeah, completely I'm... minuscule amounts of, of biofuels actually being produced to get to the point where you can actually scale it up to yeah, I think uh, just one flight. Something that, something that really, really stood out to me in your paper was, um, so, so just because obviously our, our listeners will, um, might not have read it there's a the paper focuses on the u.s defense logistics agency energy right the, the i don't know how yeah, you yeah. pronounce it because when i was reading it i just in my head i kept pronouncing it uh delay dla yeah that's funny e. it's uh they it's the uh it's the dla and then dash e for the energy which is yeah. the dla e is the sub agency that deals with energy within mm -hmm. the defense logistics and so um, virtually unresearched group you say um yeah, yeah I, I we we couldn't find any information on it and we didn't set out to study this this yeah. sub agency i have to be honest we didn't even know it existed <laughs> i don't think anyone did but this is the agency that 
basically purchases everything from MREs, right? Meals ready to eat. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. what that is, but these uh, sort of space packets of food that, uh, right. you know, uh, soldiers get in, in, you know, globally to shoelaces to uh, jet fuel. Right. Mm -hmm. And they take care of it all. And they are uh, the supply chains. And, and this was really the, the, the really awesome part of the paper that I think. Um, we developed as we were writing it, not only did we fall over this sub-agency or this large agency that handles all the fuel for purchasing for the U.S. military, but thinking about the extensive supply chains that allow the U.S. military to fight wars anywhere. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you, you know, you have three kind of nerdy geographers in a room and Kara <laughs> just kind of staring at us like, what are you guys geeking out about, right? But she was, yeah. you know, really, um, really, really uh, vital to this, to this study to, to help us think through um, the ability to now fight wars anywhere. Um, you know, be flexible, this sort of post-Rumsfeld kind of understanding of, of, of uh, be having a flexible military, um, you know, a yeah. lily pad network of, of, of forward interventions um, to fight terrorism still depends on a very traditional method of delivering fuels. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so you need those those linkages to fuel lines if you're going to depend on um, jet fuels or gasoline or, you know, now that changes when you start to think about the calculus where Patrick and I start to think about where you have now drop in biofuels yeah. or solar. Right. You know, now guiding these Hellfire missiles. Yeah. And so <laughs> that then changes the calculus of these military supply chains. But as of now, that hasn't, that changeover hasn't happened. And so, um, you know, we then bring in this idea of thinking through these kind of deadly supply chains, you know. And, yeah. and I think just for, for um, just for context for some people that might be listening and, and might be wanting uh, some, some numbers on this, um, from your paper, it says that the DLAE handles about 14 million gallons of fuel worth uh, 53 million US dollars per day um, operating out of Virginia with a, a site that has uh, 258 terminals worldwide, the capacity to reach 38 countries, uh, military bases, bunkers in 51 countries and airfields in almost 100, um, which is absolutely uh, just outstanding, like, wow, just it, it wowed me. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And the I fact mean, that it manages $8 billion in contracts is is crazy as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, one of the things we, we sort of had, there was a bit of tension with in terms of with tension that we like in terms of kind of scholarly kind of tension, which was how to describe this agency, right? Clearly, when we mm -hmm. think about it in a Viverian way of an institution, uh, you know, Kunz thinks about this in, in her paper in, in, um, in progress that came out of rethinking institutions as being this kind of, uh, you know, sluggish monolith that, you know, is very conservative and doesn't, non-flexible and, you know, uh, doesn't change, right? Or doesn't, you know, it doesn't have the ability to adapt. And, and uh, you know, this is a kind of a sort of, monolithic way in which we think of institutions. The DLA to us was this really fascinating sort of dynamic institution that was able to sort of deliver on the dime your fuel, shoelaces, and MREs, right? And so how do we describe this agency that's operating like a private kind of well, the way in which we imagine a sort of a private but, entity but even of, even know? if uh, correct me if i'm wrong but even even you know with sort of the the missiles the ammo the shoelaces um jet fuel is still about 80 percent of all uh, sort of, con of emissions and consumption of the u.s military um is right. just jet fuel which is yeah i mean how many planes are they flying <laughs> i mean it's it, you know it it's they are flying a 
a lot. I mean, it's not just in sorties that were taking place at the time in, you know, in Iraq and, and Syria, but also, um, well, I mean, you know, but also in other places, but also um, the fact that, that not all fuel burns the same, right? right. Not all fuel has different, uh, you know, fuel has different sort of um, uh, global warming potentials. Right? And so jet fuel burns mm -hmm. at a much different rate than heavy diesel fuels. And or, um, you know, when you or a good example of this is when you get a ship moving, right, uh, which many ships are, are actually nuclear, but not, not many, but many of the aircraft carriers are larger. But, but um, you know, if you get a ship moving in the sea, it doesn't it, it's, it's burning at a much different rate than, um, you know, these jet these jets, which the majority of the carbon, my understanding is, um, is um, being emitted on takeoff and landings, but mainly takeoff. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so, and they're taking short, short flights. Um, yeah. A lot of these of these jets, and so that's where you get a lot of the emissions from. Um, as I understand that you you highlight a problem as well that it's not even that. Um, like even if the military the u.s military has ambitions to switch to less carbon intensive um energies they are still needed that that is still driven by a need for more energy actually so it, yeah and and also i mean you know and a, a few uh, you know i have um very close scholars uh close colleagues that are actually looking i was at dunlap and and um andrea brock and, and others that are looking at some of the costs of renewables right or a lot of the, the costs of energy saving technologies right sort of green extraction which are really really um damaging you know have a large environmental footprint for some of these rare earth minerals and other materials that are needed to make this transition but you know keeping it on on fuels you also have um even if what we call sort of want to turn or try to turn the furnace off um what we see is that uh there's a particular carbon lock-in right which is um a path dependency to war fighting right where you have weapon systems and and high altitude aircraft which also burn at a much uh, higher rate um our understanding is and the infrastructure now which um and capital invested in this supply chain which then you know we're looking at the burning the same fuels whether we like it or not for the next yeah. 20 to 25 years because of the right? life cycles of these of, of these yeah, uh, the life cycles of these yeah. of these planes right and yeah. and the um all the way going to the materials to the infrastructure to the investment mm -hmm. to the pork in dc i don't know if that i mean that term is is uh transferable but this is the yeah. benefits or extras you get in um places that you know where Lockheed Martin actually is building these planes right yeah. so, so I, I think I think overall the 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 whole like how I describe this this paper really is is looking at um something that's that's often overlooked right something that's quite hidden away um yeah it's another thing that's that's really institutional and it's got a lot of political political and financial interest behind it so it's just like another nail in the coffin really about how it's it's not really any any one particular person's fault but it's it's like a, a whole system of in interlocking interests in geo geopolitical interests and it's not it's not immediately obvious that any of these interests can be changed so it's almost like just a a, a blood spots war either we stop doing these things or it's not like we, we don't have the, the technology to make renewable aircraft right now for example and to to power everything with solar it would just cost way too much so the the only feasible solution here seems to me just seems to be to to, to massively curve the energy reduction in in these areas and that's gonna that that's going against the political zeitgeist and it's not really on the table it's completely out of the the overton window but if we if in this like time like Wait, we're in an ecological emergency. Obviously, if we can push for as a movement, if we can push for these radical actions, then if that's the only direction we can go into to um, serve in the carbon budget, then that's what we have to do. 
and obviously the the anti-war movement is isn't what it used to be but in the, in, in the conclusion of the paper you say that we should integrate that that movement into in, into the climate movement and i think that will be that will be a good way to to massively reduce the energy of obviously it's it's like bigger than greece so and and no that that's a really really great segue and I, and i think you're right i mean you know we could we could study these these things and and uh, elucidate some of the hidden both carbon costs and some of my work before on labor right trying to sort of the eco precariat trying to get you know make visible what are kind of hidden labor costs um in environmental programs um but sometimes they can feel overwhelming right how do you take on the u.s military right and and um do you do you politely ask them to reduce their carbon footprint right or you know i mean clearly Please start sending drone strikes with, uh, yeah. with solar panels on them yeah too. right no and so and so what are we asking for here are we asking for a greener way to um you know break things and kill people right and and so you know the only way to really turn the furnace off is to kind of as as uh you know as we say shuttering vast sections of the machine off right and this and you could imagine the only way of doing this is radical change um and you know that's where really your guys passion and your guys um enthusiasm to look for radical change in what is a uh, particular crisis now we need to be careful here not to buy into the discourse because the u.s military would also say there's a climate crisis and this is why we're doing the things we're doing and so we want to be careful in terms of saying that as we are in a crisis then the state of exception um takes hold where we need to uh make sure the military is ready military yeah, yeah. ready for what they would call are these multiple sort of multiples right these uh multiple threats and um and then positioning themselves to military up more right and and build bases in antarctica and and, and the you know where you know the new up up in the the north pole where i where new supply lines and geopolitical dynamics are playing out, right? And so, so is the only way to cool off the furnace to turn it off then to, to quote yeah, you guys well, in your concluding we're, statement? Yeah, well, what we're, what we're arguing for are coalitions, right? And so one of the things that came out in some of the earlier discussions once this paper was published um, were how do we build coalitions where the climate conundrum is also in line with the anti-war movement right it's been a long time i would argue probably since the 60s where that type of political coalition really took force um and then in the 80s the sort of anti-nuclear um movement mainly in europe but also in the u.s uh, and so are we now right for a movement where an anti-war um climate sort of crisis extinction rebellion starts to also be in conversation and it's not just extinction rebellion it's all of us also kind of um build diverse coalitions with an anti-war movement right and so maybe the question is back to you um you know how do we build these very diverse coalitions where um you know like-minded goals for radical change can be sought after without splitting the argument right so one of the things yeah, that also yeah. well also i have to say happens particularly with the political left but also uh, you know across the spectrum is you know these multiple grievances that we have rightfully so that splits the message yeah, right yeah. i mean yeah. and and so you know stay on message here right mm -hmm. we need to turn the furnace off and so we're hoping that papers like this and other studies this is not the only one but there's a whole host of other great work out there that's all pushing towards radical change 
by in which we're not splitting the 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 political sort of momentum yeah i think i think you you've hit the nail right on the head i mean i know from uh from our own experience at uh, lancaster uni xr that it's incredibly difficult to get people um <laughs> engaged with uh, a certain issue and i think what I found personally was that the best way to get them engaged with an issue like climate change is to link it to something that they really deeply care about that is in itself intricately uh, and intimately linked to climate change, right? So mm -hmm. getting those sort of multiple fronts, like you said, um, it, it's intersectional at the end of the day, right? Um, sort of American imperialism, environmental crimes, um, these sort of things, they're all intricately linked. And I think once you find um that that link you can quite easily get people to work together but um you know if uh, if you'd like to talk a little bit about um sort of our own efforts here i think we've found that the 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 hardest thing and i think this links back a little bit to the us military stuff is that blame isn't in, on in one individual responsibility is shared blame is shared and the sort of the pyramid of power to say um sort of who takes the decisions on what is also very much split and that makes it really really difficult to to get anything done um i think about uh, josh and i who've worked on uh, the university investment policy for example the university in when was this josh i think this was in I think this was about six months ago, the university was ready to publish a paper, um, a little sort of message letter saying that uh, the university had no investment in uh, weapons, fossil fuels, et cetera, like all ethical investments sort of. And we didn't really want to believe that uh, face value. So we went and spent about 70 um, total hours of work on uh, investigating the investment policy from the university after doing freedom of information requests and um, we found that very often it's either due to a, a sort of lack of, of care like some sort of apathy or or they maybe don't want to show it I, I, I don't know what it is I think it's more apathy uh, or laziness but a lot of a lot of unethical investments were just not were just overlooked right um some some for example companies that were invested in were oil companies and they were legitimately just marked down as um chemical company and therefore the university could say oh well look this isn't uh this isn't a, a fossil fuel company it's a chemical company and we went and looked at the company and what do they do they make fracking uh chemicals so it's it's very easy i think to to lose the the sight of of the sort of thread uh when when you share that much responsibility and blame yeah no and and these 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 problems are layered i mean you're you're playing at, particularly at the large institutional level um some of it is subterfuge some of it is uh purposeful ignorance right some of it is um just blatantly um you know greenwashing um but you you find yourself in a uh, and then some of it is 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 purely ignorance that why you know what is wrong with these companies there's nothing you know there's nothing these are outstanding sort of blue chip sort of companies that are the backbone of the British economy um, right and so yes we should be investing in them and if there was a problem with them then we shouldn't um, they shouldn't exist. But that's not our, you know, they are apolitical actors in this. And so, you know, these tensions have been going on. And again, the climate movement in particular has been at the forefront of this disinvestment. I mean, incredible work going on in the US, in the UK, um, across Europe, in Asia, even in our, you know, in, in um, universities across Africa and South America, um, where the investment schemes have really gained momentum mm -hmm. and um, you have to build off that momentum and make sure that, yes, you're right. The money that's divested from, you know, fossil fuels doesn't then find its way in a shell game into, um, you know, Rio Tinto or, yeah. you know, uh, 
What, what we found was so difficult though was investment funds. I think those are really, really like a massive eco uh, problem because they are allowed to to call themselves ethically responsible or um, socially responsible environmental fund, etc. With I found at least no regulations. Uh, it seems whatsoever, at least not enough. Um, so we found the university, for example, in one of its portfolios was investing in an investment fund, which itself was investing in other investment funds, et cetera, et cetera. And that dilutes the money. And then you just lose track of it because some investment funds have 10,000 different holdings, each of 0.001%. And then, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's so difficult to keep track of the money. PhD, anyone? Yeah. Well, you know, they don't call her panic <laughs> masters, panic PhD for nothing. Um, um, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's hard it, to, to look. No, at it's it. incredibly hard, and it and it, you know, these are these are volunteer. This is volunteer labor you're doing, right? These yeah. are volunteer yeah. resources. You're running off passion. You're running off, in, you know, what you see as as a better future. And this is also burnout work, mm. right? You guys are at the front lines. You know, you're out there um, doing die-ins on Fridays and climate strikes, and and you know, this 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 type of work um, wears you down. I think w with no result. I think yeah, I I, I agree. When I, I feel like when we do get results, it, it does kind of reignite the flame. But I think mm -hmm. when we when we see sort of the university council keeps sort of mugging us off a bit and telling us, okay, uh, next council meeting, next council meeting. And yeah, yeah. I, th I think there's an interesting tension here also that I don't think has been resolved. I, I, I published a science, a letter in science that was next to Michael Mann's letter with a, his colleagues. He's a big um, sort of celeb climate mm -hmm. guru at Penn State um, about how could we support the climate strikes? Greta's movement and the climate strikes in Europe. And, and he was speaking from a, um, you know, an established professor's perspective where, you know, clearly Extinction Rebellion has a, a momentum and is, uh, um, has been doing it, an incredible collective action. Um, and we want to help as, you know, professors, as, 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 you know, uh, people who have, have also been through some of this work as well, mm -hmm. maybe not as successfully, but we also don't want to step on anyone's toes, right? I mean, this is a youth yeah, movement yeah. strike, and, and um, I think there could be a little bit more collective sharing of experience, of knowledge, um, mm -hmm. back and forth in ways in which the, the agenda doesn't get changed, shifted over, uh, ways in which um, there could be a little bit more collaboration um, and working off what might be some tension of yeah. between, you know, hey, hands off my hands off my <laughs> my movement. But well, I, um, I know for a fact we haven't we've we've tried to take the the opposite approach to that with our own uh, LUXR um, part because ob obviously the problem with uh, the, the the sort of the really good thing and also which is a problem with Extinction Rebellion is that it's so decentralized. Right. So unfortunately, every Extinction Rebellion group gets blamed for one group's um, mis misdoings. And so and each group seems to have slightly different nuance to what they're doing. Um, and our nuance is that because we're a university group, I think we're really trying hard to include not just students, but and not just you know students and, and lecturers and, and staff and all that, but also um, people you know who work for example in the library uh, cleaning stuff like uh, the whole staff of the university the yeah. whole population the by the sort of ecosystem of the university you know next thing you know we'll, we'll be taking ducks in as uh, as members but um the, we we it's really important i think to include everyone in this movement because we've uh, heard firsthand for example from from some cleaning staff at lancaster uni um about how for example, they suggested more environmentally friendly ways of doing things, of doing their own job, right? And mm -hmm. have just been told by the university to basically keep silent and to not worry about that. <clears throat> so I think you're right. We do all have, and we all have that sort of shared experience and, and that our own perspective on the issue. And But unfortunately, we haven't been able to get many 
sort of uh, adults, if I can say that in, in quotation marks, because I, I, we, you know, we considered ourselves a sort of adults as well. No, I mean, is um, it, I mean, I, can, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, Extinction Rebellion, my understanding is a youth, is a youth climate movement. Mm, not exactly. So Extinction Rebellion is, is partnered up with youth, uh, climate movements but in itself mm -hmm. isn't i mean it was it was created by a i think josh knows a bit more about this than i do but um roger allen is that his name uh so there was a group of about 10 to 20 professors in in the south that were basically they they wanted to devise the best way to to create um a national movement or an international movement um to raise consciousness about the climate and the ecological emergency and also to put pressure onto onto governments, so, but they right. wanted to do it in sort of like a, a revolutionary way and decentralized, so that it right, so right. that it could basically go on without them, um, and I think they've completely succeeded with that. And no. and part of that philosophy of decentralization, um, the, I think the reason why we we want to take in as many people as possible, like um, not not just make it a youth movement, is because this is primarily a problem of power and who decides how. Um, society is organized and how, um, how we use our resources and how we distribute them and I think it, it's highlighted very poignantly with the with with the example of the Queeners how they've got this idea and it would it would definitely reduce the carbon footprint mm -hmm. but because the people who get to make that decision are busy doing other things they don't really have time to take into account these um, quite frankly more pressing issues so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a power dynamic thing, which is why it's very important that we um, we make it very intersectional and um, very representative of everyone at the unit. Great, great. I mean, you know, the, you're not the first one to go through this tension of of trying to make something um, very decentralized, but then with a very central message, right? And and um, organizing that those perspectives on how to get there um there's tension there's always you know my understanding my experience is there's always going to be tension there but you have to work through that tension and to make sure that the message you stay on message to get to that <laughs> that end point and I mean, if that's the if that's the one sort of you know bit of advice i could give all of us yeah. sort of fighting for um you know to to get through this sort of climate conundrum is to stay on message. So we're we're running out of time a little, a little bit, um, you know, and I think uh, we'd love to have you on again at some point um, if you'd like to talk more about your other research and stuff as well. Um, although I'm, I'm aware that right now is, is marking periods. <laughs> it's quite busy time. So thanks already for, for having come on the show. Um, I just want to finish with maybe a more personal question, which would be, how do we fix this? How, as in your experience as a as a senior lecturer, as a as a researcher, as a I you know I, I think I can call you an environmental activist as well. Um, how how do you how do you think we should fix it? How should we go about doing things? It's a big question. I it's know. A, it's a big question. It's a great question. I mean, there's no reason why we we shouldn't shy away from these big questions, right? And um, we we should really take them on. I mean, how do we fix this? Um, you know, we put our heads together. We put, you know, and we put our heads together with a, a lot of other people and, and to do what, what you guys are doing and try to get as many perspectives as possible with the understanding that um, we may never fix it, mm -hmm. right? We, it, it may never be fixed. And so the measurement of success here could be um, how do we, successfully try to fix this and um and or how do we uh work towards uh fixing it but yet create a, a more livable society along the way and so um you know my answer to that question is just make sure that we are continuing to do as we do this burnout work as i like to call it right this work that you know burns us down and grinds us down and and really kind of um to a screeching halt where um you know 
sometimes it's hard to get up in the morning because of the issues that are weighing on us on our shoulders that you know we also take it easy and to make sure our, our you know our own well-being is, is taken care of but also that we're building a, a kind of generation of of scholars of activists of scholar activists of um people interested in the issue that can um take our place right that there's a kind of longevity to this fight mm -hmm. um that um radical change doesn't happen quickly and that we're going to need um you know to put it in military parlance we're going to need an army here right yeah. and we're you know um that's the last kind of military discourse i'm going to use but <laughs> i mean you know that's this funny. is a this is a um this is a pickle and so we're really going to have to work our way out of this and it's going to take time um how do we do it you know a mixture of of informed knowledge communication energy enthusiasm radical direct action political might um networking Mm -hmm. You know, you could list all the tools that that of the trade. Um, we need to do all of them. Yeah, we need to yeah. do them well, and we need to do them for a long time. Um, hopefully, not that long, because I don't think we have that long. But yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think it's difficult to do these things with deadlines sort of looming. Yeah. So I mean, you know, let's draw on that network, and um, mm -hmm. you know, people who could draw can draw. People who can shout need to shout people who could who could you know you know work their way through the halls of of power you know work their way and um we use all the all the the, the tricks of the trade and the tools that we have to, to get through it yeah I, that's that's my best answer i i i i um you know we gotta try all right Thank you so much, Ben, for, for coming on no, the show. No, thank you both. This has been great. I really, really appreciate yeah. it. And I'd love to be back on someday. Well, I've, I've loved uh, your articles. And honestly, I think I'm going to keep reading them. So uh, if you want to come back on for, for any of your other ones, um, please do. And uh, okay. yeah, so from Josh and I, honestly, thank you so much. Thank you both.